Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day you've given us. We thank you for the life you've given us. We thank you for your word you've given us. And we ask this morning as we seek to understand it and to live in the light of it, that you might address each one of us. Please expose our hearts before your word and your word to us, that we might live as your faithful people in response to your abundant mercy. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, how did you feel uh, three days ago now when you heard that Premier Vladimir Putin had spoken about sending a peacekeeping force to the Ukraine? When just yesterday he told his nation and the world that his special military action was to protect people who have been subjected to tortures and genocide. After all, for quite some time, President Putin has made no secret of the fact that he believes all of the former Soviet republics, including the Ukraine, really belong in the Russian Federation. Several years ago now, Russia annexed the Crimean Peninsula. A few months later, the eastern provinces in the Ukraine declared themselves independent and Russian puppets assumed leadership positions with them. Only weeks ago, the Russian army began to amass on the border between Russia and the Ukraine and ships from the Russian fleet moved into the Black Sea. Earlier this week, President Putin officially recognised the provinces of Donetsk and Lamansk as independent people's republics. And now those republics have, apparently, asked for Russian help, and so Russian troops have crossed the border and the shelling has begun. Yet the Russian president still speaks of peacekeeping and protecting the oppressed. It was, it is, a monumental exercise in hypocrisy. What he says he is doing is not, in fact, what he is doing. The reason he is doing what he is doing is not the reason he is announcing to the world. Hypocrisy is action or language that presents as one thing when it is really something very different. It is virtue signalling when there is no virtue underneath. It's announcing a peacekeeping mission when it's really an invasion. One of the real problems with hypocrisy is that it often emerges by stealth. Indeed, you might not know that you're being a hypocrite until it's pointed out to you by someone else. You might actually believe that what you're saying or what you're doing is good and right and true. I, I don't really know whether that's the case with President Putin. Perhaps it is. I don't have access to his heart. Perhaps he really does believe he's just doing what is right that he is indeed protecting innocent lives that are in danger from the violent oppression of others. Perhaps he'd say that the Ukraine and the West are the real hypocrites. Perhaps it's never entered his mind that he might be a hypocrite and he's blind to the very possibility. Have you ever been brought low by the accusation that you're a hypocrite? Have you ever been stopped in your tracks because you recognise the truth in the accusation and you've not, well, you've never even considered the possibility until that very moment? 
someone or something has exposed the truth about what you were doing or saying, and you weren't even aware of it. You may have thought you were being virtuous, uh, but the reality was very different. It's important to grasp the blindness that so often accompanies hypocrisy as we return this morning to Matthew 23. The Pharisees, you see, were the purists in Israel in the first century. Those who separated themselves from even the appearance of sin and compromise. The scribes were the theological teachers, the doctors of theology, the wise ones who taught and applied the law of Moses. Neither group had set out to be on the wrong side of the purposes of God. They would never have seen themselves as opponents of the Messiah or hindrances to the people of God. They were object lessons in what you should be if you want to do what is acceptable to God, not object lessons in what you should not be. So to be recipients of Jesus' sustained rebuke in Matthew 23 must have come as a massive shock. All the more as these are, in Matthew's Gospel, the very last words Jesus utters to the religious establishment in Israel. But don't forget that this rebuke was written down for us. It was addressed to them at that moment, but it was written down for us. More than that, brothers and sisters, it was written for our good. Even the stinging rebuke of Matthew 23 is written for our good. So we need to hear what Jesus said that day and we need to pay careful attention to the danger Jesus was warning about. For you see, that danger didn't just disappear when the Pharisees did. The blind hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees echoed in the churches over the past 2,000 years. It has echoed in the hearts of Jesus' disciples all through that period, and it's not at all beyond possibility that it may be echoing at this moment in your life. You and I need to heed Jesus' warning this morning. So hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 23 and verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut the kingdom of heaven in the face of people. For you do not enter, nor do you allow those entering to enter. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you cross land and sea to make one proselyte. And when he has become one, you make him twice the son of hell that you are. Woe to you, blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is bound by it. Blind fools. For what is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And you say, whoever swears by the altar, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gift upon it is bound by it. Blind ones, what is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, the one who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And the one who swears by the temple swears by it and whatever resides within it. And the one who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and the one who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
because you tithe mint and dill and cumin and neglect the weightier things of the law, justice and mercy and faith. It is necessary to do those things and not neglect the others. Blind guides who strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you cleanse the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside is full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup so that the outside might also be cleansed. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but inwardly are full of dead bones and all uncleanness. So also you outwardly appear righteous people to people, but inwardly are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the, in the day of our fathers, we would not have shared in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you are witnesses to yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets, and you fill the measure of your fathers. Snakes, brood of vipers, how would you escape from the judgment of hell? For this reason, behold, I am sending to you prophets and wise people and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town, so that all the blood shed by the righteous upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who was murdered between the sanctuary and the altar, will come upon you. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How many times I wanted to gather your children as a hen gathers her chicks under the wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is left as a desert to you. For I say to you, you will definitely not see me again until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Scathing, isn't it? Imagine being on the receiving end of that. Seven woes, or eight if you include the one in your footnotes, verse 14, which is not found in any of the earliest manuscripts, so I'm going to leave that one out. Seven warnings of disaster and seven explanations of why it is coming. But once again, they're blind to it. I doubt the scribes and the Pharisees, as a group, would have recognised themselves in Jesus' words. We don't shut out people from the kingdom of heaven. We're its greatest advocates. We don't evangelise in order to make people just like us. We don't trivialise the importance of what people say and what they promise. We don't let ourselves be distracted from the big things, the most important aspects of life as a believer, by little things that ultimately don't matter anywhere near as much. We don't play those religious games where the external is so much more important than the internal. We don't draw attention to ourselves as godly and righteous while all the time nurturing the very opposite of both inside us. We don't pretend we're better than those who came before us. And yet I bet at exactly the same time the words of Jesus got under the skin of some of them. Why is he so aggressive? What does he mean? What does he know? What has he seen in me that I have not seen? 
it is possible to convince yourself and others that you are acting with integrity and at the same time to be guilty of the attitudes, the words and actions Jesus talks about in these verses. Let's uh, look at the seven charges just a little more carefully because again and again Jesus makes clear that these great champions of the scripture have missed the point of the scripture and that ought to make us sit up and take notice in a place like this. The champions of scripture have missed the point of scripture. Well, the first two woes are about entering the kingdom. You might even say they're about evangelism. It seems there was a fair bit of what we might call evangelism going on in first century Judaism. But it was not what it seemed. It was not calling people into the kingdom of heaven. I mean, how could it be when they rejected the one who is the only way into the kingdom of heaven? When Jesus started proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, you might remember back in Matthew 4, his preaching was summarised as repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yet neither the scribes nor the Pharisees were into repenting and they refused to admit that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. They would not welcome Jesus. They would not come to him in repentance and faith. And they, dis they sought to dissuade anyone else who thought about it. And so whatever they thought they were doing, they were in reality shutting people out of the kingdom. They would not enter it themselves and they prevented others from entering. They might have been energetic in practice. Jesus spoke of them crossing land and sea just to make one proselyte, one disciple. And they were winning people to be their, their disciples, but not to be disciples of Jesus. And with the zeal of a new convert, convert their new proselyte, their new disciple, would be twice as dangerous and twice as damned as them. They often, as not, out-Phariseed the Pharisees. Just think of Saul of Tarsus. And they too would not come in. And they too prevented others from coming in. It is a damning indictment. Whatever they thought they were doing, they were working for the other side. They were fashioning children of hell rather than children of heaven. Now, we're big on evangelism in this place. It matters to us. We are gospel people, evangelicals. Yet calling people to follow Jesus is very different from calling people to follow you, to become members of your tribe, to become devotees of your favourite guru. Without an unwavering focus on Jesus, the only way into the kingdom, we would be shutting people out. Don't confuse evangelistic zeal with a commitment to biblical truth. It's not always what it seems. Well, the second two woes are about scrupulous obedience, the everyday practice of religion, personal piety. They're about fine theological distinctions and insistence on the details, which in reality invert the priorities of the kingdom. The scribes and Pharisees manufactured technicalities and preoccupations which changed the nature of life as a child of the living God. 
You see, how we use our words matters. Telling the truth matters. Being true to your word, fulfilling our obligations, keeping our promises matters. Not, not least because words and truthfulness of words characterises God himself. But the scribes and Pharisees wanted to be more precise than that. And their precision fabricated loopholes which undermined their pretended commitment to the truth. Your oath or promise doesn't really count if you swear by the temple or by the altar. You don't have to keep your word then. What really counts is when you swear by the gold in the temple or the gift on the altar. Yet by teaching that, not only have they opened up the possibility for legitimate lies and even breaches of promise, it's okay, it doesn't count, they've got everything upside down. They've missed the point of what scripture says about the way we use our words. If the gold is special because it's in the temple and if the gift is special because it's on the altar, then surely the temple and the altar matter too. Every word counts. Every promise is witnessed by God. And you can't get out of that by technicalities. You can't get out of that by precise definitions. Whatever they thought they were doing, they had distorted a simple commitment to truth-telling with absurd and esoteric detail. And they showed themselves to be blind. And when they became fixated on the minutiae of the tithing their garden herbs, while at the same time forgetting justice and mercy and faith, there it was again. The priorities of the kingdom ignored and turned upside down. Now there's nothing wrong with tithing, even with tithing mint and dill and cumin. But it's not the chief priority in the kingdom of heaven. How did the prophet Micah put it in the Old Testament? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Justice, setting wrong things right. Mercy, protecting the broken and providing for the needy. And faith, trusting the one who made heaven and earth, who knows the end from the beginning, walking humbly before your God. It is possible, even here, uh, to get really excited by the niceties of theological distinctions and to let go, to drop the things that are absolutely huge in the mind and purposes of God. Whatever you might invoke as the guarantee of your truthfulness, what matters is telling the truth. Constructing ways to make that a little less demanding. Oh, it doesn't really matter, it was just the temple or the altar, or heaven, at least you didn't swear by the gold or the gift or God himself, shows you're blind. Blind to what matters to God. And a focus on the details of religious practice which ignores the big picture items of the gospel's impact on a person's life is just as blind. Going the extra mile is not always a sign of faithfulness. Others might see you as scrupulous in your attention to the detail of God's word, but if you let go of the big picture items of justice and mercy and faith, you'll have got it all out of proportion and you will have missed the point. You'll become blind to the big picture. The transforming power of an encounter with Jesus 
shows itself in justice and mercy and faith. Anything else is straining out gnats while swallowing camels. Don't lose sight of what matters to God. Don't lose sight of the big picture. Well, the third two woes have to do with being distracted by what is seen. It's a concern that Jesus has raised before in this gospel, a preoccupation with externals that pays little attention to what's in the heart and what's unseen. You might remember that Jesus said earlier in the gospel, in chapter 15, it's out of the heart that comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness and slander. These things, he insisted, are what defile a person. In that context, it was the matter of ceremonial washing before meals. Here in Matthew 23, it's the ceremonial washing of cups and plates. The scribes and Pharisees cared about the parts that were seen, but paid scant attention to what was not seen, the inside of the cups and plates. And the inside is where cleanliness or uncleanliness really matters. Once again, they'd inverted the priorities of the kingdom. Jesus drove home the point by speaking about whitewashed tombs, bright and unmissable in the summer sun, but inside there were only bones and putrefaction. They were storehouses of corruption and death, no matter how glorious they might seem to be on the outside. And it is very clear by the words Jesus uses at this point that they, the scribes and Pharisees themselves, are the whitewashed tombs. No matter how virtuous they might seem to others, how righteous they might appear, and they work very hard at giving that impression as an encouragement to others, of course. The reality was that those with a reputation for being fastidious about the law were, in fact, lawless. They might look clean, but they were putrid. They might appear beautiful on the outside, but it was a very different story within. And once again, they've missed it. They've missed God's priorities and the big picture of the Bible. Don't be fooled by the outside. Piety is not the same thing as faith. Religious practice is not the same thing as obedience. Don't be distracted from what God sees and is interested in. Well, you will have noticed, as we read through the passage, or at least I hope you did, that the seven woes come to a huge crescendo with the last. The scribes and Pharisees are ready to acknowledge mistakes were made in the past, but they were mistakes made by others. But we're different. If we'd been there, we'd never have done that. They celebrate the prophets. They build tombs and decorate monuments to them. They would never have taken part in killing them. And yet, even while they stand there listening to Jesus' words, they and those like them were plotting to kill Jesus. They were the sons of their fathers, not just physically descended from them, but bearing the family likeness. When they were challenged by the words of the prophets or the words of the Messiah, when their preoccupations were unmasked and the way they'd inverted the priorities of God was out in the open for all to see, they would do all they could to silence those words. They wanted to look supportive, but they had the same murderous heart. It had been shown in the past and it would be shown in the future. And what this group will do now, what they're planning to do, even at that moment when Jesus was speaking to them, will cap off the history of their fathers. 
Remember Jesus' own parable uh, just a few chapters earlier. One servant sent out, and then another, and then another. Some beaten, some mistreated, some killed. And then the Lord of the vineyard sent his son. The killing of the son was the culmination of a history of opposition to God and his purposes. It started with Abel at the very beginning of the Old Testament. It had ended with the murder of Zechariah. Not the prophet Zechariah, but the priest who was a a child or a a grandson, it might seem, of Jehoiada that we read about in 2 Chronicles 24 at the end of the Old Testament in the Hebrew order. A long history from Genesis to 2 Chronicles of murderous opposition to God's spokesman that would now culminate in just a few days' time in the judicial murder of his son. Despite the blind self-confidence of the scribes and Pharisees, We'd never do that. They were more like their fathers than they thought. They refused to hear. Those who thought they were defenders of biblical truth, the guardians of Israel's religion, the most devoted servants of the living God, the champions of scripture, and who regularly presented themselves as such, the scribes and Pharisees were in fact the heirs and culmination of hatred to God and his gospel, and they would bear the cost. But once again, this is a warning for us. In a place like this, especially, where the word of God and the gospel of Christ are taken so seriously and valued so highly, where we are prepared to pay the cost and to bear the price, in a place like this, Could we be found to echo the hypocrisy of the Pharisees at this point? Refusing ourselves to listen to the prophets. Refusing to surrender to the Son. Could we too bear the family likeness of those who went before us, whose resistance and hatred towards the prophets ended in murder time and time again? It's a scathing series of rebukes, isn't it? Addressed to the Pharisees, but written for us because the danger they were blind to in their lives could all too easily be echoed in ours. Friends, don't confuse evangelistic zeal with a commitment to biblical truth. Don't lose sight of what matters hugely to God. Don't be distracted from what God sees and is interested in by what is seen and is of interest to others. Don't close your ears to the words of the prophets recorded for us in scripture and pointing us to the Christ, you don't want to find that for all your protest to the contrary, you're in the long line of those who've opposed him. Well, there's one last thing that we mustn't miss in this passage. It's in the last section, the lament over Jerusalem in verses 37 and 39. Did you discern the tone in Jesus' words in verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stoned those, stoned those who sent to her. How many times I wanted to gather your children as a hen gathers her chick un- under the wings and you were not willing. See, these woes were not pronounced by an enemy of Israel or Jerusalem. They were pronounced by one whose love for the inhabitants of Jerusalem was real and deep. How many times, how many times 
Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The picture he uses is one found numerous times in the Old Testament. God is the one who gathers and God is the one who spreads the protection of his wings over the vulnerable. If only they would heed his warnings, even now and come, he would gather them and he would protect them. But they would not, and so judgment must fall. Yet in the future there would be another day, a day when Jerusalem would recognise its king and cry out, not ironically this time, but with rich understanding, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. It is easy to see hypocrisy in others, isn't it? Whether it be a contemporary figure like Vladimir Putin or the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day. It's easy to be scandalised by their behaviour and keep words such as this somewhat at an arm's length. It's what they really do need to hear. But the goodness of God is seen in this that in his word he warns us of the danger of hypocrisy in a way that challenges us and gets under our skin. Spoken to them, but written for us. And right at the end, we get to see that the one who warns us is the one who longs to gather us. This is a good word, if we will listen to it. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, please help us to be those who not only hear what you say to us, but believe it and live it out. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.